If you guys would, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and we'll be starting in verse 1. And once you are there, uh, if you guys could stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 3 and verse 1 reads as follows. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Traconitus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we find ourselves now in chapter 3, and we are chronologically now uh, in the reign of time in which the rest of the Gospel is going to take place. So the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke, really chapters 1 and 2, have taken place over the course of just about 12 years of time. And now we have made another time jump into Luke chapter 3, where we find ourselves about uh, uh, into the, the time of the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. And this is preceded by John the Baptist beginning his earthly ministry. And in early parts of Luke, this shouldn't surprise us, because we're told that John the Baptist is going to be the forerunner for Jesus, And so, in a very fitting way, Luke is going to continue to record the account of not only the beginning prophecy of how John is the forerunner, but also this later fulfillment of the prophecy and that John is going out and becoming the forerunner of Jesus. But chronologically, we are now, uh, the rest of the book of Luke is going to take place over the course of three years of time. So the rest of the 21 remaining chapters and then chapter three as well take place over three years. And so there's a lot that happens and Uh, Luke decides to set up this gospel with um, an introduction or historical context here in chapter 3. And this sets the scene for everything that takes place moving forward. But before we get into that, um, you might remember the first time we talked about John the Baptist. I said that uh, he might be one of the most underrated people in all of the gospels. I think actually in all of the New Testament. And the reason he's so underrated or underappreciated is fittingly because his ministry takes place at the exact same time that Jesus' ministry takes place. So it makes sense that he would be overshadowed and overpowered by the magnificence of his Lord. But I think we should still lean in and pay close attention to John the Baptist and his unique contributions to the prophetic ministry. And I think something you'll notice tonight that marks John the Baptist as being a prophet and a herald of the kingdom is that he has no fear of man. He lacks any kind of fearing man. This takes place, and we see it in his earthly ministry here, and ultimately this fear of man is something we can learn from as an example even in our own lives. So as we get into the text, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we read about John and we read about his ministry. And how this text breaks out is we'll take three different looks at 
uh, first the prophetic context of this passage, and then we're going to look at the prophetic commissioning of John to start his earthly ministry, and then finally we're going to take a look at the prophetic message that John preaches. So starting off, we're going to be looking at the prophetic context, and that takes place in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconitus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. So this first verse just drops a whole bunch of names. And this might be confusing to us who aren't really students of this period of time in history. Most of us might have learned about Western civilization and its history and the kings and the the empires that reigned during that time. But this is Luke, being a historian, dropping a bunch of names that fills out the context for any reader. This is true for his reader, uh, Theophilus, who's reading this gospel. This sets the historical time period that these things take place in. But for us, it also gives us a window into what is the political context like, what's the social context like, even uh, naming the high priest at the time, it gives us an insight as to what is the religious and theological context of the situation where Jesus and John conduct their ministries. And so we're going to look at each of these names one by one, and we're going to see what clues Luke is giving us about this time period. The first thing we see is that this is during the reign of a man named Tiberius Caesar. Now you might notice that in the first chapter of Luke, or sorry, in the second chapter of Luke, we meet uh, Caesar Augustus. He is the ruling emperor of Rome right before Tiberius Caesar. So now in the period between chapter two and chapter three, we've had one Caesar pass away and another one take his place. So there's a new leader in Rome, and we see that it is considered to be the 15th year of the reign of this Caesar. Now, if you're doing some historical digging, this might land you with two different dates in which this could take place. Some say this takes place in A.D. 29, which had been after Augustus dies, Tiberius Caesar takes over. Fifteen years into that would have been A.D. 29. That can be verified with a lot of external sources. But there's also another potential option, which is that it's uh, A.D. 26. And that would count not the rule from when Tiberius Caesar was the only ruler of the Roman Empire, but when Caesar Augustus took Tiberius under his wing as a co-ruler of the empire to train him up, and then it's 15 years from that period, which would leave us with A.D. 26. And if it is A.D. 26, that puts Jesus and John about 30 years of age when this public ministry starts. Okay, so A.D. 26 and A.D. 29, those are the two common dates uh, that are thrown around. Uh, For what it's worth, A.D. 26 is uh, corroborated by some other gospel accounts as well uh, in regards to how long the temple has been built, and we know when the temple was started being built by Herod. And so this, this kind of colors in the time period. Uh, Tiberius Caesar is the ruler of the Roman Empire. The next person we see is a man named Pontius Pilate. Now, if you've read the Gospels before, you're going to meet Pontius Pilate again. Um, he's got a pretty interesting history, a pretty interesting backstory, um, and we're going we're gonna to meet him and talk more about him when we get to those sections of the Gospel. But suffice it to say, Pontius Pilate is the, the next local ruler over the empire. So Tiberius Caesar is the ruler over all the Roman Empire, And then Pontius Pilate is specifically responsible for the area that concerns the Jewish people. So Rome expands beyond the the Jordan and the the land of Israel. Um, And Pontius Pilate is the local ruler. He's the governor of this region of the empire. So Pontius Pilate is the next one named. It says he's the governor of Judea. And then we get two other names. We see Herod, the Tetrarch. He's the one who rules over Galilee, which is where Jesus of Nazareth is from. And we also see that Herod has a brother whose name is Philip the Tetrarch. 
and he is going to reign over Ituria and Traconitus. Now, if you were to pull up a map, what happens if you look over the whole region, uh, there is Judea down at the bottom left-hand corner of the map, and then you see uh, up on the north side, you'll find Galilee, and then over to the north, uh, northeast side, you will find Iteria and Traconitus. So they're just breaking up the regions of control that each of these men hold. And then up even further to the northeast, you will find the place called Abilene, and we see that Licinius is the man who rules over that. Now that's just names and places, but the political context is what's more important, and these names tell us something if you do some digging in the history. So before we got to this point in history, the person who ruled over this land, this region of the Jewish empire, was Herod the Great. He's the Herod who tried to have all the firstborn, or the children under two years of age, killed uh, by his decree because he feared the coming Messiah. He's the one who the wise men meet. He's the one who institutes that rule. That Herod the Great had four sons. And when he died, his four sons took over and broke up his kingdom into um, four different regions. That's why these Herods are known as Tetrarchs. They're rulers over each of the four different regions of the Herodian Empire. Now, two of those sons are incompetent rulers. So one of them gets his empire kind of swallowed up by one of the other brothers. And then the, the other one gets actually replaced by a Roman official. And those Roman officials that replace one of the Tetrarch rules, um, those are the Roman officials, the governors, who we've had five of them since the start of that point, and Pontius Pilate is the fifth of those people. So it's a politically very unstable time in the Jewish empire. Not only has the kingdom been divided and ruled and reigned over, but also in this one specific part of the kingdom, they've had five different rulers in a very short span of time. And that's not five different rulers because they're, they participate in democracy where they vote people in and out of office. That's five different rulers because people are so incompetent that they get fired or killed and then replaced by somebody else. So this is a very politically unstable time for the Jewish people. Also, all of these rulers are either Edomites or uh, Gentiles. And for the Jewish people, this is a very oppressive situation. The Edomites are their enemies, and you can read about that in the Old Testament. And the Roman Empire is the current oppressing force that sits over all of the Jewish people. And so into the scene comes John the Baptist and Jesus. And this, is a, this context tells us about the political angst that the people were feeling. There's religious groups kicking up out of this called the Zealots, and their whole goal is to revolutionize and overthrow the Roman government and establish a new kingdom in Israel. And so this is still an expectation of Jesus even up until the night when he's betrayed and all of his followers are waiting for the moment that he's going to you know, call his people to arms and they're all going to overthrow that local Roman government. And so this kind of sets the scene for why that was so prominent because there's complete political turmoil in the land. The other thing to notice is not just the political context, but also you will see the, the religious or the theological context we find ourselves in. So when we last left Israel, if you were to pick up from the Old Testament, the last of the prophets finished their prophetic ministry prophesying about how the Israelites need to turn from their pagan idol worship and they need to turn back to the one true God. Now, 400 years roughly have passed since that point in time, and we find not pagan idol worship as the problem for the Israelite people, but rather legalistic worship of the one true God is now their problem. So they've substituted one issue for another, and we find this because we see that Ananias and Caiaphas are the high priests. And these two men are very famous. They actually dominate the, the religious landscape of the Jews, and they almost have um, a monopoly over 
what is and what isn't acceptable. They're the ones who put the Pharisees in power. They're the ones who put the Sadducees in power. They're the ones who get to govern what is and what isn't an acceptable temple sacrifice, what can and cannot be sold in the temple, what days the Jewish people celebrate as holidays. It's just two men who really control the sphere. And you might be wondering, why are there two high priests? According to Numbers, we can only have one high priest and he serves for a lifetime. When he dies, he's replaced by somebody else. So why are there two? Well, this also points us to the Romans meddling in Jewish affairs because the Romans didn't like the fact that Annas had so much political sway and influence over the people. He's their like top religious guy. And so they didn't like that he was sitting in office for so long. So they remove him from office and they put someone else in his place. And they remove that guy from office, put someone else in his place. And it's actually five people down the line. And we find Caiaphas is the current person who's acting as the high priest. But this points us to the Romans' involvement in all aspects of Jewish life, including even their religious practice. But Ananias is really, most commentators will say, the person who's running the show. Although he's not in power officially, he's kind of like the guy who runs everything from behind the scenes. He still has all the sway, he still has all the power, and even the people who replaced him are all his sons, and Caiaphas is his son-in-law. So he has family political sway over the whole religious empire that is taking place. And so not only are the Jewish people being oppressed by political forces and social forces, they're also being oppressed by the religious legalistic practices of the Pharisees and these high priests who put burdens upon the people that they cannot bear. And so this is where we find John the Baptist. And so the, the context that we find ourselves in is one that's not of neutral importance. The context is always important for where the gospel is preached and how the message is proclaimed. And we find that John the Baptist is placed in a point in history that's like a breaking point. This is what we would call a prophetic context. This is where something's going to go, and it's either going to be really, really good or really, really bad, but it can't stay just as it is right now. And so that's the kind of historical context that we find ourselves in. And so that's going to move us into understanding John the Baptist's mission, and now we're going to see how this transitions into his prophetic commission uh, and what he is called to do by God. So if you look with me in verse 2, after we see that it's Ananias and Caiaphas, it says that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So you see John the Baptist receives a word from the Lord, and he's in the wilderness when he receives this. So he grows up and he was raised in the wilderness. We see that at the end of chapter 1 of Luke, that John the Baptist grows up in the wilderness. And here he's in the wilderness, he receives a word from the Lord, and then as a prompting of this word of the Lord, he's going to go out into all the region and he's going to preach this baptism of repentance and of the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's a few words in Greek that you could use to describe the word of God. And many you might be familiar with. One of them is logos. That's the one that is John chapter 1, right? The logos was with God and the logos was God. That's one way to describe the word of God. That has like an all-encompassing sense to it. But in, he, in this case, Luke chooses a different word to describe the kind of message that John the Baptist receives. He uses a different word, and this word has more of a connotation of a direct divine call or a direct divine commission for his ministry. And this word is the one that is chosen here by Luke. And so we can understand that this is not just a general revelation of Scripture that John receives, but it's a unique calling that he receives from God to go out and do whatever comes next. In fact, if you were to survey your Old Testament, you would notice that almost all of the prophets have this kind of experience with God. 
when Saul is removed as king of Israel, we find in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And that same word of the Lord tells Samuel to remove Saul as king, to anoint a new king who is David. And Samuel does this faithfully obeying God. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we see that these are the words of Jeremiah to whom the word of the Lord came. So Jeremiah writes words, but these words are a reflection of the words that he has received from God. We see in uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. This starts off his prophetic book. We see in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And so this is the connotation and the context in which we see a lot of Old Testament books written. And I want you to see two more patterns with me. If you'll turn with me into your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1. It's close to the, it's close to the New Testament. It's, it's one of the last minor prophets. Haggai chapter 1. And I want you to see the pattern with me that Luke is emulating as he is telling his gospel account of John the Baptist. So Haggai chapter 1. I'll wait. There's only two chapters in Haggai, a very small book. You might miss it if you flip too much. <laughs> Are we there? Close? There we go. All right, Haggai chapter 1, I'm going to read in verse 1. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shilatel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozakak, the high priest. And it then says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now I want you to follow that pattern that was just read. He names the, the year the ruling empire, some of the other local leaders, and it also says that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Okay? Now, turn like one page over in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 1. It's like one or two pages. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. And you'll see the same pattern. It says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. He's the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with our fathers, therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. That same pattern. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet. There's a context to which the word of the Lord comes to the prophet, so we can pinpoint this at a time in history. And then there's a following accompanying message that this prophet carries. And so when Luke introduces us to John the Baptist and his public ministry, we see the same pattern. He names all of the local leaders. He names Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, and Philip. And then he names the two high priests at the time, and we saw some of the high priests named even in those texts. And then it says, the word of the Lord comes to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And then this this John, the son of Zechariah, is going to go and to preach this message he has now been burdened with. And if in those Old Testament books you were to continue reading the books, some of them are short, some of them are very long, If you read the books, you get the sense of the word of the Lord that comes to these people. And those messages are very, very similar to John the Baptist's message. John the Baptist's message is described to us in verse 3. It says, He goes goes about proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
So John the Baptist, we call him John the Baptist because this is what he does. He goes around, he baptizes people, and he preaches like this one message. Okay? This is the only thing he's known for. And he proclaims this faithfully throughout all the region of Judea. And then there's a, a common question, which I think is worth addressing, is what is the baptism of John? What is the baptism of John? It tells us that John baptized people. And we see John and Jesus doing concurrent ministry at one point in time. And Jesus' disciples in John chapter 4 are also baptizing people. And then, if you were reading along in your M. Shane plan this week, you would notice that also in the book of Acts we see there are people who are still under the baptism of John. And what's interesting is their encounter with the disciples. In Acts chapter 19 we find that encounter, and I'll read it for you. And Paul, while he's in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized, notice, with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe on the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul did this, he laid hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So we have decades after John's public ministry is over. John's been beheaded. He's been dead for a long time. You find this pocket of people in Ephesus who are still obedient to the ministry of John, who just haven't heard of Jesus yet. So they're faithfully baptized by John. They're faithfully following that. And you'll notice that they rightly, because they've been baptized by John, they believed, when they hear about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit, they want to be baptized into the baptism of Jesus, into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the reason this is the case is because John's baptism functions in a very strange manner because of John's very strange situation in redemptive history. John is the forerunner for the Messiah, and he is the forerunner that comes right in front of the Messiah. He's the herald who runs like right in front of the king's chariot. And so when he comes, it's not long after he leaves that the king comes. And so if his message has landed with people, if people respond appropriately to his message, they'll be baptized into his baptism. But his baptism is not a final baptism. His baptism is to prepare the king's coming, and ultimately it's to receive the king and be baptized into his kingdom. See, John can't baptize people into Jesus' baptism because John can't do what Jesus is going to do. But what he does, he does faithfully, which is he baptizes people into a sense of repentance. That is, into a sense of preparation for the coming Lord. We see that in Acts chapter 19. And his baptism is described as one of repentance. And if you know your Old Testament at all, this is not a unique or different message from any of the other Old Testament prophets. He's placed right before Jesus, but this is not a different message than any of the other prophets yet. In fact, in Isaiah 45, 22, the Lord says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. This is out of the mouth of Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved. That's what John's saying. Repent and believe. Repent of your sins and trust in God to forgive. Isaiah says, Turn to me and be saved. Ezekiel 14, 6, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols. Hosea 14, 1, we studied that last year. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. And you'll also see this in uh, Jeremiah 25. I'll just read it for you. 
Jeremiah 25. And you'll see in verse 5 that it says, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do no harm. Yet have you not to listen to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands in, to your own harm? So the Lord recognizes that people are rebelling against him. And his message through the mouth of Jeremiah is repent, turn, and I will receive you. And when John the Baptist comes, his message is repent for the forgiveness of sins because God is coming. And so this is not a different message than any of the other Old Testament prophets. In fact, all of them carry roughly that same framework of message. So this is not to be understood as John the Baptist is revolutionizing the Jewish faith. John the Baptist is returning to the same old Jewish faith that the prophets of old declared. It's been 400 years since the last prophet was alive. John the Baptist is the first, but he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And his message is the same as all their message was to the people of Israel. Repent, believe, because God is coming. And he is gracious to forgive those who repent. He is gracious to receive those who believe on him. But if not, there is danger coming. There's danger coming. And the prophets are famous more for that danger end of the spectrum because a lot of their prophetic books deal with the wrath to come. But John is no different. We'll see next week in his specific sermon that he preaches to some people, he includes the wrath of God as part of his call to repentance. So this is not different either. So John is just standing in the lineage of all these people. But what he's warning the Jewish people of is slightly different from what these other prophets had to warn them of. Because in that time, they struggled with pagan idolatry. They were to go after the gods of Canaan, and they were to go after the gods of the Babylonians. But God sends John the Baptist not to call the people out of idol worship. They've been cured of that. The Babylonian Empire and that exile, that cured them of their pagan idol worship. But what you do find is a Jewish people that thinks they can now earn their way to salvation. That they, if they can obey the Mosaic Law, if they can wash as often as they should, if they can tithe what they should, if they can sacrifice what they should, that somehow, some way, they can earn their way into salvation. So they've traded out their secular idolatry for legalistic earning of salvation. And the message that John the Baptist has is this is no better than the thing you traded for. This is not, a, this is not an upgrade. This is just as bad as it was before. Because he comes with the same message. Repent and turn from your sins. I'm reading the book right now, Pilgrim's Progress. And in that book, you meet a man whose name is Christian. And Christian is found in the town of Desolation. That's where he lives. And he is burdened by the weight of his sin. He hears, he reads the scriptures, he hears about the weight of his sin, and he carries this burden. He straps it on his back, and he is so bared down, he's so weighed down by his burden, that he flees and he goes on a pilgrimage. And on this pilgrimage, he encounters a whole lot of characters. And the first character he encounters is a man named Evangelist. And Evangelist points him to the way of salvation. And Evangelist says, go this way, go on this path, don't deviate from it, and at some point in time you will arrive at your destination. And so Pilgrim goes, or Christian goes on his pilgrimage with his burden on his back. And so he has left a town of idolatrous worship, and he's going on pilgrimage. And on the way on his pilgrimage, he encounters a man called Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And what Mr. Worldly Wise Man has to tell him is, you don't need to go on that journey. That journey is really hard. There's a whole lot of trouble waiting for you. Instead of going on that pilgrimage, go down this road to Mr. Legality's house. 
And Mr. Legality has all the cures that you could ever want. And Pilgrim sees these words as good. He sees, he sees that's a good, it's an easier path, it's a shorter journey. And so he turns down the road towards Mr. Legality's house, but he doesn't even make it there because there's a hill in between him and Mr. Legality's house called Mount Sinai. And the problem with Mount Sinai is no matter how good Mr. Legality's advice is, Mount Sinai will crush anyone who tries to come past it. The, the law is so great, the burden is so heavy that no one can bear it. No human person in their right mind would even attempt to bear it, to even walk past it. And what happens ultimately is Pilgrim is with his burden carrying, he's, he's right in front of Mount Sinai and he doesn't even want to walk past it, he's so scared. And his burden is heavy and he doesn't know how to get rid of it. And he bumps once again into Evangelist who finds him straying off the path. And Evangelist points him once again, go down this road. And Pilgrim arrives at a different location. He goes down the road the way Evangelist pointed him to. And when Christian gets this new house, he meets a man named the Interpreter. And the Interpreter takes him and shows him all kinds of rooms, all kinds of different things. But the last thing that the Interpreter shows him before he sends him further on his way is he shows him, he shows him a room where Pilgrim starts running up a hill. And at the end of this hill, he sees the cross. And when he sees the cross, unlike when he saw Mount Sinai, his burden spontaneously falls off his back. And he's now been unburdened, not because he could get there, not because of anything that he did, but because the man who hung on the cross released the burden from his back and it falls off of Christian onto the man on the cross. And it says he looked upon this man and he loved him all the more and he marveled at the fact that the cross had somehow relieved him of his burden. And what you see with the people of Israel is a similar story. They've left their idolatrous ways. They've traveled some ways in the right way. But now they're stuck in legalistic practice, thinking they can bear the burden. And in Acts 15, we know that they struggle to bear the burden because Peter gets up and says, why do you want to put on the Gentiles a burden that even we couldn't bear, nor our fathers? So therefore, let's do away with the Old Testament laws because Christ Jesus has filled them all. And so they decide that you don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. You don't need to follow the Jewish legal codes to be a Christian. And this is what Paul goes on teaching as he continues to convert people to the faith. And this is even true today, and I fear the church has strayed back towards legality, thinking that if we go to church enough, if we tithe enough, if we do enough good works, if we're involved in enough good ministry, and even if we say the right things and pray often enough and read our Bible enough, that somehow, some way, God will get rid of our burden because of what we've done. But what God says is full stop, at the cross, the burden's been taken care of. You don't need to do anymore. Now, we obey and we're obedient out of response of the good gift, and Christian continues on pilgrimage out of response of the burden being lifted. But he doesn't think that the longer he goes on pilgrimage that somehow the burden will then be lifted, that he will earn it in any way. And you and I need to remind ourselves of this truth daily because we, like the Jewish people, tend towards legalism. We tend towards self-righteousness. We tend towards earning our salvation. And John comes into this scene and warns them to repent because of the forgiveness of sins. And there are many people who respond to John's message. There are many people who get baptized and they repent and they believe. And ultimately, there are many people who at this moment think that they've repented. But when Jesus comes and he preaches his message, there are many who fall away. And so the warning is to count the cost, to consider the massive cost of what it is to authentically repent. Because it's not just something we can do casually. It's not something you can do once and just be done with it. 
It is an ongoing self-denial, self-death that Jesus calls us to and that John calls the people here to. And so we see that not only is the context significant, but also we see that John has a specific commission that he's been given. And then the last thing that we're going to see is the specific message that John has, the prophetic message of John. And you will see this starting in verse 4, the prophetic message of John. It says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the message of John's ministry. And this is a quote out of Isaiah chapter 40. And if you have time this week, I would encourage you to look at Isaiah chapter 40 and compare it to the text that's written here and kind of compare and contrast the differences. I'm going to point out some of them that are worth noting, but I would like you to go back and look at how the quotation is used initially and how it is used later here by Luke. Luke quotes this, but he quotes it along with several other of the Gospels. Mark and Matthew also quote this text. But Luke is the only one who quotes several verses out of this text. Luke, when he quotes it, he chooses to go all the way to verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 40, which is significant. And so we're going to take a look at why that is. So the message is this. John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And his message is preparing the way of the Lord. He cries out, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And there's a whole lot of imagery going on here. And so the question is, what exactly is Isaiah talking about? What exactly is Luke talking about? And what was John talking about when he was saying these words? So John says, prepare the way of the Lord. Remember, John is the forerunner, the messenger, the herald who goes before the coming king. And his message is one of a herald. This imagery is one of a Near Eastern king who's going to go through conquering a land. And so he sends his herald before him to clear out all the debris so that his army and his chariot and his procession can proceed unhindered. So what they do is they remove all the rough places. They make the path straight. They make sure it's clear and ready to go. And the herald not only runs to clear out the path of debris, but it also runs ahead to the cities where the king's coming. And it says, hey, the king's coming. Prepare yourself for his reign. Prepare yourself for his rule. It says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And then it says that as the path is being prepared, that every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low. And these are significant poetically because it's referring to high mountain, glorious self-elevation places that will be made low by the coming king. These are places in Jewish circles of idol worship, the high places where they would sacrifice to the Baals. And so he's going to take those high places, that idol, that idol worship, and he's going to lay it low. And it says that every valley shall be filled. And the valley is a lowly place, and he's going to take the lowly place and he's going to fill it up. And this is referring to people who are of lowly estate, who are humble estate, and who are depending not on their own righteousness, but the righteousness of the king. And he says, I will fill up that valley, not with your righteousness, but with my righteousness. And the high people, those self-exalting people, they will be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. Those things that are wicked, those things that are still broken, those things that are still out of line, we will make those things straight. And the rough places shall become level ways because the king is coming. 
And so the thing that we are ultimately preparing here is not the procession of a king through a wilderness region, but it's ultimately talking about the procession of the king into your heart. You are making your heart ready. You're preparing your heart. John's preaches a repentance, and his repentance is prepare your heart for the coming king. Make sure that the rough places have been made smooth. He will fill the valleys, and if you have mountains, he's going to knock those down. The crooked places shall become straight. And this is the message of John the Baptist. Prepare yourself for the coming king. And this quote not only goes into the moral implications of the message, but it also goes further. And it states that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, if you were to read the original quote in Isaiah 40, that word there is not salvation of God, it's the glory of God. And this is a significant substitution that Luke has decided to do. Luke has substituted the word glory for salvation. And the interpretation that Luke is providing us is that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he's saying the salvation of God is the glory of God. That God's glory is most aptly described here by his coming salvation. That salvation and glory are one and the same. That when Isaiah prophesies about the glory to come, he was referring to the salvation which Luke later interprets for us. And John the Baptist might have been the first one to quote it this way. But this is to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 40. That all flesh will see the salvation of God. And remember Luke, a Gentile, writing to Theophilus, a Gentile, quotes a much longer section of this prophecy and quotes all the way up to verse 5 of the prophecy where it says that all flesh will see the salvation of God. Not just the Jewish people, the Gentiles also. All flesh will be be subject to this rule and this reign, and all flesh are called to prepare their hearts and make their paths ready. All flesh is called to repent. That refers to people of every tribe, tongue, nation. The, The God is not a God only of the Jews, but he's the God of all the peoples. He's the God of the Babylonians, the Persians, the Romans. He's the God of the United States of America. He's the God of countries who don't submit to him. He's the God of every single part of the world. Because he says that one day when he comes, every people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow down, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the God of all the earth, and everything falls under his dominion. And every single person is called to prepare themselves in this way. And the warning that John leads us with, and we'll study that more next week, is what happens if you don't prepare yourself. But suffice it to say that there is quite a punishment waiting. And if you were to read the rest of Isaiah, you could even see the context in which this is located. What happens if you don't repent? What happens if you don't turn and believe? What happens if you don't make yourself ready for the imminent coming of the king? The king's arrival is clear. We're supposed to prepare ourselves. And John, his message to prepare is one of moral purity. What he's saying is it's not good enough for you to listen to your religious, do your religious sacrifices. It's not good enough for you to memorize the Torah. It's not good enough for you to do all these ritual washings. What matters is your heart. What matters is your heart before God. And in this, he gets into a whole lot of trouble. A lot of the misconception today with evangelism and with sharing the gospel is this consideration that, you know, the message of the gospel is good news. So when we're sharing the gospel, people should be very happy that we're sharing the gospel. And if they're upset, that we've probably done something wrong. But John the Baptist faithfully preaches the gospel. And he doesn't only faithfully preach the gospel to people who can't do anything to hurt him. He faithfully preaches the gospel 
to every single person in Jerusalem, including that Herod who we just mentioned. And he preaches repentance because Herod took his brother's wife, someone who didn't belong to him. And John calls Herod to repentance for his, uh, his abject sin, living in sin. And Herod starts off by throwing John in jail. And John doesn't repent. He continues to say the same message over and over and over. And he vexes Herod's wife. And he vexes the daughter of Herod's wife. And ultimately, this leads to him being beheaded for the message that he proclaimed. John the Baptist faced capital punishment for this message of repentance and forgiveness. He's not preaching repent because wrath is coming. There is no forgiveness. That would be a very hateful message. What he preaches is a message of hope. But that message of hope is met with anger and frustration because it demands not only accepting love, but admitting sinfulness of our own natures. And that is hurtful to a human heart. We hate admitting that we're wrong. And when powerful people who can actually act out their anger meet John the Baptist, they throw him in jail and they kill him. And John the Baptist isn't the first, just like the other prophets, he's not the first one who experiences this kind of treatment. In fact, if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 12, Jesus tells us a parable concerning all of the prophets. Mark chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and then he went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some of them they beat, some they killed. And these are the servants, the prophets, who God is sending to the people. And they beat them, they scorn them, they shame them. Some of them they kill. And he sends servant after servant after servant to these wicked tenants. And then it says, he's, in verse 6, he still had one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of that vineyard do? Will he, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous to our eyes. And the Pharisees understand exactly what Jesus is saying, because you'll see in verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and they went away. Jesus, talking about all of the prophets that, the God, that God has sent to the people, says that some they beat, some they scorned, some they mocked, but they're, they're preaching a pretty logical message. The owner of the vineyard, you're the tenants, you're leasing this place out. The owner of the vineyard wants some of his cut, the thing that's rightly due to him. And instead of these tenants paying it as they ought to, giving themselves to the Lord, they take the servants and they beat them and they think that's going to solve their problem. They shut up the one servant. And the, the Lord, the master of the vineyard, sends another and another and another. And he sends all kinds of servants and ultimately he sends his son, whom they also kill. 
And so the message of Christianity, the prophetic message of repentance, is not one that is typically received kindly by the world. It is not one that we should expect to meet without any kind of resistance. It's offensive. The gospel is offensive to the wicked heart. And we see that Jesus preaches about this, but we also see that not only is it the case that some people preach faithfully the message, but we also see it that there are some who are false prophets who come proclaiming to preach the gospel, proclaiming to preach the message of God, but not preaching it. You'll see this in 2 Kings 22, where there's a king who wants to go invade a foreign army. It's King Ahaz, and he has 400 prophets who he's paid off to prophesy and predict the future in his name. And every time they predict something, it's something good. You're going to win this battle. You're going to beat this kingdom. You're going to reign and rule over this land. Don't worry about that sickness. You're going to be just fine. But there's one prophet who faithfully preaches the word of the Lord who doesn't agree with these 400. And King Ahaz knows this, and he says, I don't like to listen to that guy because he's always saying bad things about me. And in Jeremiah 14, 14, 14, we see a similar encounter. Jeremiah meets false prophets. And in 14, 14, the Lord says, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination and deceit in their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them and who say sword and famine will not come upon this land, by sword and by famine these prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out into the streets, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, their wives or their sons or their daughters, for I will pour out evil upon them. So here we see that John, he faithfully preaches the message, but there's another consideration, which is that there are some who come proclaiming to be in the name of Yahweh, to be proclaiming to be from God, who preach a false doctrine, a false message. And one of the easy tells about a false prophet is they tell you the things that you want to hear. John preaches repentance, turn from your sin and believe on God, you need saving. And these false prophets typically prophesy things that the people want to hear. Don't worry, there's no famine, there's no sword, there's no danger over there. We see even in 2 Timothy 4 that Paul is going to warn young Timothy and he's going to say, in the last days there will be those who accumulate teachers for themselves. And these teachers are going to teach things just to soothe their itching ears. And so just because someone claiming to be on the side of the faith, to be with the church, that does not automatically mean they are not a false prophet. Be warned about the fact that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. And in the last days, there will be people who will have doctrines of devils, and we need to be wise to their ways. And you can recognize it first and foremost by this. They don't preach repentance. They preach that you are not that sinful, that you don't need saving, that God comes to love and he has no wrath for you. And ultimately, you can stay as you are. There's no, there's no, there's no harm coming. But God warns Jeremiah, and he warns us even today, that those people who listen to those prophets, there is wrath coming, and they will be cast out in the streets, and they will face the very thing that you are warning them about. So don't be fooled by the fact that some people in the name of Christ say, these are not sins, you're okay. And some people would disagree with them. Just because you can get two Christians claiming to be Christians to say one view or another doesn't mean that view is automatically a neutral moral point for Christians. We need to examine the scriptures. We need to examine God's word, his moral law. What does he teach us through his word? And through knowing that, we can know whether this is a false prophecy or a true prophecy about God. 
Is this a false teaching or a right teaching about the word? But we need to examine the scriptures to know this. Just because someone says they're a Christian doesn't mean that you trust them as an authority figure. And there are many morally confusing things happening even in our day today where you can get Christians who line up on both sides and who have this battleground debate. And just because Christians are on both sides doesn't mean that this is a neutral point for Christians. Sometimes it means that this, this side of the debate is false prophets proclaiming the name of Christ but telling the world what they want to hear. And this side is people who are telling the hard truth but truth that is biblically right. And so we need to be wise to those ways. But the real thing is that true prophets, they preach the gospel faithfully. They preach the repentance of sins, belief on the Lord Jesus Christ, and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory. Not for man's salvation, but for God's glory. And not ultimately for our good, but for the glory of our King, which is ultimately our good. And so we need to be wise to sharpen ourselves, to prepare ourselves for these false doctrines. And we need to be like John the Baptist, not fearful of man, not afraid of what the world's going to think about us when we preach this message. This message will be met with scorn and with shame and with hatred. But that doesn't mean we turn. In fact, Scripture tells us to be faithful even to the bitter end. If that end is death, if that end is the loss of a job, if that end is the loss of a friendship, you need to be faithful to the message you've been entrusted with. That is the call and the command of Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that tonight and this week and through, throughout the coming months and years that you would continue to strengthen us. Strengthen us to be uh, ready for the fight, to be prepared, to be ready to engage with the world, ready to preach the good news of repentance, ready to preach that the forgiveness of sins is freely offered. But Lord, let us not be so scared of man. I recognize even in my own heart a fear of man that is prevalent. I recognize that that might be true of many of us who struggle with worrying about people's opinions about us. And Lord, I pray that you would release us from the chains of that worry. That you would release us from the fear of man and Lord, only be consumed by fear of you. To honor you, to glorify you, and ultimately, Lord, to make your name great on this earth. As we say in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we pray this tonight and throughout this week that you would be with us and Lord, that you would enable us by some measure to glorify you tonight in our worship. Lord, I pray all these things in your holy and in your precious name. Amen.